Welcome, one and all, to a new episode of Podcasts and Players, the first one of the year. And boy, oh boy, am I excited because we've got somebody I've kind of wanted to have on the show for a while. There's a lot of people want to have on the show, and uh, editing takes a while, so that's kind of why it's taking so long. But today we have the uh, most royal crustacean that I'm aware of. Uh, he reads Reddit stories and reacts to these uh, these stories on his channel. They're almost always D&D horror stories. He has his own Reddit where you can share your own stories or share uh, some that you happen across. You can find him on Twitter as well. Please, everybody, give it up for Crit Crab. Hello, everybody. It's Crit Crab. Hey, I'm a crab. Let's go. Hell yes. I am very excited to have you on. We, uh, just so everybody knows, we just went through an hour-long journey trying to figure out how to fix, like, an automatic, like, uh, microphone recording gain issue. We went everywhere else but Zoom, which is what we're recording on. (laughs) (laughs) So, we're off to a great start. How are you doing, man? Me, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, just doing my thing, making making the videos, reading the reddits, eating the random objects I find on the beach. Crabs are omnivorous creatures, after all. You gotta take what you can get uh, when you're in the middle of the food chain like, like you guys are. Yes. I, I know a lot of people have... Um have been waiting for for this interview and by a lot i mean uh my girlfriend who is a is a fan i must say uh, oh nice yeah yeah i introduced like one time like okay so she hasn't played D as of recording this yet but knows obviously i'm very much all about it so i was showing her some of the people in the community like dingo doodles and when we happened upon some of your videos she really liked your videos so the next thing i know i you know come into the living room and she's got you on the tv while she's working <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. I love uh, that. Yeah, so she's a big fan and uh we we look forward to each new video that uh that you release. Yeah. For those who don't know, Crick Crab, you tell us what you exactly what you do and how you got into it. All right. So uh let's start with how I got into it because that will answer the other question too. So I was just chilling at the time. I uh, lived in a van in the middle of the desert. I was just, you know, like the boxcar children or something. That was me, except with the van. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I just kind of I was just doing my thing, playing D&D, reading Reddit posts, whatever. And I kind of happened upon r slash D&D. Now, this is when I was slowly coming out of, you know, my r slash memes, dank memes, Redditor phase, whatever, you know, it happens. So I found that there's a subreddit for D&D, which I, you know, was a huge fan of. I played a ton of. Mm -hmm. And from there, I occasionally found people sharing their little stories or whatever, which dragged me. I kind of found my way through the pipeline to r slash RPG horror stories. Now, I had experienced some less than you know, I've I have had I have experienced my own problems with D&D games before with other people or with myself. So I found a lot of them like relatable, like, oh, whoa, other people also make these huge mistakes, too. It's not just me or people I play with. Right. So, right. I was like hooked on that subreddit, like crack for like, 
weeks. I, I spent weeks, right? Because that's what happens with me. I find a new subreddit or online thing and then get obsessed with it for like a couple when, weeks and then drop when it. When did you start doing your uh, videos? I should have researched this. This is on me for not knowing. But um, uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I'll tell you. Um, I got to say about two weeks after I found that subreddit, I was already making videos. I was making videos um, a few days before I like, sorry, one sec. The timeline goes, I start, I found r slash RPG horror stories. I finally make D&D videos. I've always wanted to do that, right? And I just mm -hmm. started. So I was going to make what I wanted to make at the time, which I still think there's a good market for. Uh, I just haven't gone back because I found what works for me, right? Uh, I was going to make bite-sized D&D content, just like five quick quest ideas with little flesh like or five npcs or you know five magic items and just kind of build all the lore and everything surrounding it and put it in a pack like a palatable small chunk videos yeah so that's what i was gonna do uh at one point i'm trying to do my thing you know i have something to do i can't read on my phone so i thought cool i'm just gonna listen to rpg horror stories on youtube i'm sure they're there mm -hmm. and I don't find them. Um, okay, there are two channels, two Reddit channels. Like, you know, those Reddit channels, like, you know you know what I'm talking I, about. I think I know of one specifically where the guy sounds like a paid voice actor. Like, it's not even his channel. He's, like, paid to read the stuff by somebody uh, yeah. else. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I forgot what it was called. But he sounds um, like this. And he always oh. talks like this. Blah, blah, blah. He's hey, wait. Of, I know who you're talking about, but I don't know the name, but yeah, I know exactly yeah, who yeah. you're talking about. People who, who are watching or listening to this, you've probably come across that channel. It's not terrible, but that guy definitely like has a, a way of speaking that sounds very, you know, practiced, I suppose, to, to speak nicely. He's probably yeah. a really nice guy. I don't know anything about him. Oh, yeah, him. yeah, yeah. What was I saying? Yeah, no, it was just around that time. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, I found like that channel made one RPG horror story video. Uh, Illuminati, another amazing channel, uh, made a video, made one video. And it's like, I'd watch the video and be like, hey, you know, I want to see more. And I don't want to have to run through 15 different channels to find what I'm looking for. And I never did find my RPG horror story channel that I could just watch. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't think it was going to take off the way it did. But I was like, I guess I could make the video then. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's what I do. I get my laptop. I use my microphone laptop, right? Mm -hmm. um, I sit down and that's just kind of what I'm doing, right? Uh, but yeah, no, my first video blew up. My first RPG horror story video blew up. So I kind of figured from there that I might as well stick, just keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, it's working. I don't really need much variation. It's something I've kind of come to regret a little bit because it would be nice if I could make more types of videos, but eh, I'm kind of pigeonholed. But again, it's not a bad thing. I still enjoy what I'm doing. Still really good. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, your your channel is is now pigeonholed as like crit crab. But I mean, if you wanted to do something else like and you could start a new channel, with a different name and then advertise it to the interested people who follow you like, hey, 
this channel is still going to be Reddit horror stories, but now I'm going to branch off and do thing B. And then yeah, yeah, I I really think I could do it. I have a lot of content. I've written several videos that I just haven't released yet, mm-hmm. uh, but they're still D and D related, and they I think my audience would like them. But it's just a little bit of self consciousness that's keeping me from clicking the public video, like the you know getting it dragging it out of private um, and moving oh, it into. Yeah. Just I'm still holding on to a little bit of, you know, uh, I still have some reservations about it. But one day I'm going to do it sometime pretty soon. Um, yeah. I don't know when. Now, uh, what should I say? As for when I started, this would be mid 2019. I think it yeah. was May I, 2019. I, I searched it while you were explaining and uh, we started. You around the same time like i made my first video right at the end of like 2018 or right, near right. the end yeah so so we've been doing this roughly the same amount of time it seems yeah no it's even crazier like uh the way i got into even making the videos because i don't i don't come from money i'm sure you've gotten the impression already but well, uh, it, wait, wait a minute. You're, you're saying your grandfather crab didn't give you that van as inheritance? You, <laughs> or were you like no. a hermit crab and you scrounged for it on the beach and fixed it up? <laughs> oh yeah, it's, I didn't even fix it up. I didn't drive the thing anywhere. I just kind of, I just kind of slept in there and whatnot. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, uh, I worked. I washed dishes at this place. It was weird because I have claws and I kept cutting all the dishes in half, but whatever, it works. Uh, I didn't get fired. And I made exactly like 500 or so bucks, like 543 or something like that. And with all of that money, I get a I get a sick bargain on a used laptop. And from there, I play free like Neverwinter, the D and D MMO. Oh yeah, uh, I played a little bit of that. Yeah, and I just kind of use all this free software, free video editor, free. I use the laptop microphone and the built-in voice voice uh, recording software. And yeah, that's why my original video mic quality sounds like fucking Xbox 360. <laughs> um, right. But somehow it worked enough and you know, I was able to up production quality considerably from my first video. But yeah, yeah so mid 2019 like just before the plague striked. I mean, yeah, that It's weird how quick it all happens and yet it still feels so long ago. <laughs> it does. It does. It feels like an eternity ago, like it was an entirely different world. I uh I'm definitely like really thankful that you did started doing what you were doing um because if there's one thing we i've talked about you in in a past episode with uh with brogan actually and i uh briefly talked about you because we were talking about how like he he kind of invested he took out a loan a business loan and like invested in his own like channel as a business and just did nothing but make videos about Pathfinder and stuff. And it's worked out for him. And he's like very clear to say, like, do not do what I did, because if it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. Oh, then you have uh, all this debt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about that. That's really cool. It's like, yeah. uh, what's it called? Like burning the ships at the harbor, you know? Yeah. It's yep. like it's all taking in. this huge risk. I'm burning all the ships there's no going back from this and i'm just going to commit to this and that's something i hugely respect out of people i didn't know that about him like 
I feel like I have this like new respect for him. That's really cool. Yeah, he uh, he did that. And but his his main takeaway was like, you have to treat it like a job, even though you're not getting paid. So you have to like, even if you're working an actual job, you need to put in hours and work yourself really, really hard in order to like have a chance to like turn that into your job. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But but. I also he was he went into it with that in mind with that goal. So what we talked about in relation to you was like like what uh is a sustainable way to make videos. And we both mentioned you as like the golden like example of sustainability <laughs> because first of all horror stories will continually be generated just because people are shitty. It'll just keep mm-hmm. happening. So you've got basically no end in sight with that. Um, you've got you've kind of got your thing. And the best part, I think, personally, is that you actually go to the trouble of editing and reading your sto- the stories and you even give your takes on it. You don't just like put it through Microsoft Sam. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No. I hate that shit. Like you actually narrate and then give your take on a thing, which is like. That gives you like people a little bit like of who you are and how you feel about a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like I was tempted after I heard how abysmally bad my microphone was. I was like, I'm just going to use like the Microsoft voice. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you <but were> close. <laughs> I, oh, it's so funny. Like I might've ended up doing it if I had the slightest grip on how that technology worked. Because I was I just I'm not I'm not the most I I think I've learned a bit about computer stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But even now, well, especially back then, I just did not have a grip on how to do it. My first videos are not edited really at all. Like there are a ton of blunders and mistakes uh, Mm -hmm. and I have to correct myself like 15 times. But uh, yeah, no, as time went on and I got better at recording this stuff, I was like, well, I guess this is what I do now. (laughs) <laughs> now I got a better microphone set up and, you know, I guess I'm not using Microsoft and I'm really glad <clears throat> I'm <clears throat> sheesh. Holy. You got it. You got it. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, it's something I very well mm, could have done, uh, but didn't. Uh, <laughs> hey, everybody. Shane here uh, from the cutting room floor. Quick Crab and I talked for a very long time and we decided to cut out a chunk from the beginning because we went on a lot of un d related tangents. However, they were pretty interesting. So if you want to check out the tangents that we went on during the beginning, you can go to my Patreon, Cool Boy Shane. Uh, no tears, just you can give whatever you like and you'll get access to not only that Patreon exclusive, but also the other Patreon exclusive chunks of interviews that I did with other guests. The link is in the description if you're interested. But with that out of the way, let's get back to our conversation and I'll let Crit Crab introduce us to the main topic of the episode. This is something that I had spent especially bothering me for like the past few months <laughs> is what does something what makes something good? What's considered good on one corner of the planet is not on another. So is there some sort of objective morality that all humans share or so interesting that we're talking about good and evil. This is a topic that has come up multiple times on the podcast. We talked about it uh, when Rune Smith was on, who, you know, Logan is all just a very philosophical dude. Um, 
But uh, in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, alignment, at least in the older editions, is baked in to uh, certain creatures. Like beings from the outer planes are beings of alignment a lot of the time. So like if you were, uh, it has been said before, like if you were to take an angel, which let's say is like a lawful good being, and that angel, for whatever reason, turned into lawful evil because they were doing lawful evil things. They would change. It would no longer be an angel or a celestial. By definition, they would have to change to become a devil or fiend uh, because that is a being of lawful evil um, because they're outsiders, I guess. Like that's sort of like the idea. But I don't know. Not everybody subscribes to that sort of mythology or mythos. Right. Um, and and the idea of like good and evil in D&D as well is like contested when it comes to just intelligent creatures right um so here's something actually so back when i played pathfinder there was a player that liked to play a paladin and i used to call them lawful stupid not lawful good because they wouldn't they would detect evil okay Mm -hmm. right they would Mm -hmm. use that and then they would detect like a thief for example is evil Right. But then they'd be like, I'm going to smite them. Like, you're going to murder them? Oh, yeah. That's not, that's not good, though. Like, bringing them to justice, maybe, for being a criminal would be good. But smiting them because you detected evil on them? Like, first of all, you don't know their story. And, you know, evil, essentially, in, in at least in the game terms, is is selfishness in, like, as a general, like, way of life, right? Whereas, uh good is selflessness generally right right so if you're really good you're doing stuff for others to kind of answer a question that you asked earlier like what is a good usually something for the benefit of others and not yourself and then uh selfish would be for the benefit of you now a lot of people a lot of humans would fall neutral because they do a bit of both right Mm -hmm. we're very yeah yeah. like a lot of people don't commit to an idea of selfishness or selflessness for sure yeah and a lot of people will justify being selfish in certain like instances and uh, you know like sometimes it makes a lot of sense oh yeah good and evil are kind of extremes when you think about it like neutrality is is the you know it's like a bell curve like most people are falling somewhere in the middle so like that's one of the big reasons why uh i mean besides the racial implications uh, the people that have a problem with making orcs or drow or any of these races inherently evil is like, but that's not how people work. You know, if you want to say that about outsiders like devils and angels and stuff, that's kind of a bit better because it's baked into their mythology that they are beings of these alignments. So it's like, OK, sure. But like drow are just elves with dark skin doesn't look too great to make them universally evil you know what i mean i can understand (laughs) the idea a lot of people get from that yeah uh i didn't mean to go on such a long tangent but there's like there's a lot to to unpack there you know like uh, yeah there there is so much there which i recently discovered because i think in my last video or the video before that no it was my very last video it's titled something like i was called racist for fighting the bad guys Uh, It's very interesting because at one point it reminded me of because, you know, that like the DM says, like these guys, like the player, sorry, somebody says these guys are evil, so I'm going to kill them. 
right? Mm-hmm. And all the other players, one of the other players, sorry, I keep mixing up my numbers. One of the other players says, nice. dude, that's totally racist. You know, this is blatantly, you know, racism, right? Because you're just judging the whole race like that. And of course, it loops back to the player being like, all of them that I've met so far have tried to kill me. This isn't racism. This is pragmatism. So it was very interesting because I got to talk about it a bit. And this was a bit off topic, mind you. But the idea of mm-hmm. evil made me want to go on a bit of a tangent. So I did. And it's the idea that in fifth edition, alignment is really messed up. They, I, the alignment system, right? I like the idea of having alignments. It's good. But the alignment system in and of itself is really messed up and can be used to defeat itself in several ways. Like lawful good just means that you do what is expected by society and uphold the law, right? For the, for its own sake, for selfless reasons. Mm-hmm. But what if the general alignment of your country is evil? Like what if donating to the poor is seen as bad because the poor are, you know, they don't deserve anything, right? Does that make mm-hmm. you lawful evil, which is somebody who doesn't really care about the rules or the structure or the system, but just kind of wants to do what they want within it? Uh, it's, it's very interesting. And of course you get the chaotic alignments, which place their own system of morality within themselves and they determine what's right. So it's like, then wouldn't everybody, every one of them kind of be chaotic good. Now, what's interesting is D and D does kind of tell you in older editions, uh, 3.5, I believe they told you what you could expect from each alignment, like senseless killing or uh, selfless selfishness or whatever. Now, there are uh, there are arguments that the alignment system can be better imposed on the players in this way or another, mm-hmm. but it's just really easy to exploit. And on top of that, given that every every player's world or experience in D and D is going to be slightly different. What is justified in that in that setting is going to be slightly different as well. I think that the alignment, the the older alignment system, an older alignment system. I'm not quite sure when. Uh, it was a slider. There was lawful and chaotic. They didn't really have this good or evil thing because it was really easy to loop around and mess with, and you know it's just weird. So they had lawful, which means you were on the side of structure, order, and rules and chaotic, which meant you were more on the side of individuality, personal liberty, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, And I think that was a slightly better idea because making the alignment system the only piece of objective morality, like this is right, this is wrong, making the alignment system tell you that is, it, it gets really muddy. It gets into really muddy waters. And some people in my comments told me like, well, objective morality comes from the gods in the game not the alignment system but the gods don't even really agree with each other and they're not exactly omnipotent either so i don't yeah see... yes the god gods in DD are not god with the capital right, g in the christian and jewish and muslim yeah, abrahamic uh, yeah. really yeah exactly like the so so here's how i personally feel about it right 
Uh, I play some Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and one of the ways clerics are uh, kind of structured in that is gods have tenants, very similar to like the O's of a paladin in 5e, that just uphold these tenants, and then you're kind of free to do whatever the fuck you want to do. Like, you yeah, can follow... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That just, yeah, I, 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 I appreciate that. Yeah, I like that aspect. One of the other things that uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition has as well that I'm not a super big fan of is that they actually have good and evil damage. Like alignments are actually like energies, Ooh. kind of. And I don't really care for that. Uh, it's used generally on like outsiders and stuff, but like I'm not a fan of that because, again, I believe, uh, as is the reality of our world, that people are nuanced we have very behaviors very. that are good or evil or lawful or chaotic and we can mix and match and kind of do everything which makes a person generally neutral but like if you for example generally do good behaviors right things that could be described as good uh that would probably make you in general a good person for example like if i'm playing a rogue and i'm stealing shit all the time from people who might deserve it and people who might not deserve it. Um, I might be chaotic neutral in general, but that doesn't mean I've never like freely given something to somebody out of the kindness of my heart. It doesn't mean I'm not capable of good things and a DM shouldn't be like, you're acting out of alignment. Like I'm not, uh, I'm not like a, from the plane of mechanist, you know, I'm not like, right. You're not like bound. entirely. Yeah. yeah. You get it. You get it. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's just, one of my disagreements with the I think that there are cool alignment systems I agree um I think that there are ways to do it that make sense but I also think maybe it should be like Knights of the Old Republic where things you do kind of shift your alignment here or there or maybe that should only be employed because that also sounds really tedious now that I say it out loud maybe alignment should only really matter to like paladins or people whose class or race it hinges on their alignment like you know angels or like you mentioned earlier like the angels that need to be good or else they lose their ability to be an angel or paladins who might lose their favor with their god though i right. do prefer the tenets idea that makes a lot more sense generally like i consider alignments only viable on things that are not player options in the sense of like okay i'm gonna get into necromancy a bit because yes that's gonna be really interesting to hear about for sure yeah i i love necromancy i've talked about it before uh one of my philosophies about how it would work in D D and how i generally rule it um in the the multiverse structure that comes with the player's handbook i think it's in that it might be in the dmg instead uh you see all the planes there's the outer planes and then the inner planes and stuff like that the material plane is in the center because it is composed of things involving everything right it's a very kind of anything goes here right um mm -hmm. but you can also see there's a like two shells that kind of wrap around the whole multiverse there's the positive plane and the negative plane they don't really explain what these planes are but in pathfinder 1e and i believe in third edition 
they explain that negative energy and positive energy, or I guess in fifth edition it would be radiant and necrotic energies, are channeled through those planes. Those planes essentially provide two different sources of energy to all the planes that are within them. But they're hemispheres, so the top half, you know, only calling it top because it's known as the upper right. area, right, yeah. is the positive half, and then there's the lower half is the negative plane. So undead, at least until recently, have been kind of almost universally categorized as evil. Yeah, they're the bad guys, the skeletons or whatever. Right, like if you have a skeleton, for example, and it's just like around and it has no master, it will generally attack things that are alive, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. how, do, how do you explain this behavior, right? So this it's known as an evil thing. And basically, if a paladin tries a divine sense, it'll be like, ah, undead detected. Now, d- the way divine sense works in fifth edition is a little different. You just detect undead in general, not necessarily alignments. <laughs> but if you were to detect alignment, you would detect it on that skeleton. But is the skeleton evil? Like, how is like it just evil, for right? being a skeleton or how? Yeah, exactly. yeah. How do you determine that? The way that I would imagine it is that when you are raising the dead, you are taking a body and the body had, you know, just because of the way that monks work, you have key, right? Everybody's yeah. got it, but monks can use it. They've trained their bodies to use this natural like source of energy that's within all living things. That's why stunning strike works on living things, right? Exactly. So you have a dead body. That means those ley lines are still within it, either through the muscles or through the bones or whatever. And so when you raise a skeleton, you are replacing the key with negative energy. And it is then bound to your will, so you can choose what it does, where it goes, right? It is not alive again. It The creature that, like the soul, the being that resided in that body is has passed on. Mm-hmm. But you are using that what what is left and replacing it with negative energy to make it walk around and attack uh, or or do things for you. However, just like with an elemental, elementals are taking elemental energies like fire and cold or whatever and giving it form. It creates consciousness out of just pure energy. They're not aligned necessarily. But like if you lose control of a summoned elemental, it goes hostile and attacks because it doesn't it like shouldn't you're using magic to make something exist that normally by nature would not exist at least not on the material plane so it becomes hostile and attacks but it's not known as evil right exactly exactly yes so like with with a skeleton the reason why it might attack is that again what is evil selfishness if you were to take the negative energy which all the lower planes border the closest to that plane and that's where evil as an alignment exists in tangible form and why you have fiends that are literally evil by nature right maybe selfishness given consciousness or like negative energy given consciousness manifests as what we know as evil and we just label it that way because that's what happens when you have an energy source that all necrotic energy is is it's it sucks out other energy. It it decays things. It takes, right? Taking, boom. Make, give that consciousness and taking is exactly what selfishness is. Whereas radiant energy is like, like in a, a burst. It's like a lot okay. of energy, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like inverted, inverted mm-hmm. necrotic it's, energy. Right, like radiance can heal and can sow life, but too much can burn and destroy a living thing. Like you can overflow something with radiance and kill it. That's why Smite Evil's great. 
Smiting, you could smite a good creature as a paladin. Like, you can absolutely use radiant energy to kill a good creature. It, being good doesn't make them immune to that, just like being evil doesn't make you immune to necrotic. Mm-hmm. The actions themselves can be characterized as these different things, but, like, the reason why most mindless undead are evil when they ping on, like, a, a detection is because negative energy is what's animating them and giving that consciousness means that they are by default evil it doesn't mean that they'll only do evil things if a if they're being controlled by a wizard or cleric they can tell them to do good things so you could do something that's seen as evil for good reasons and that's where the nuance comes in yeah exactly uh that's why i'm not quick to label things good or evil it's much easier to say like do you play by society's rules or not like do you value Mm-hmm. society or yourself more right lawful or chaotic it, it just it makes more sense that way because it ties into why you do what you do but when it comes down to good versus evil it's you know it's like you said it's it's so much more nuanced than that just to label a character good uh denies that character a lot of room to grow or change yeah and it kind of like it it does take away a lot of their ability to act like a normal human being <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to say to say something uh, to say the least. Yeah. That's why uh, what I tend to do when I run my own games is I measure how players are behaving in their environment and then I kind of keep my own little slider, like reputation sliders or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if there's a god, like you mentioned earlier with the tenets, if they uphold these tenets, then, you know, they're looked on more favorably. And it works like a more... I'm just I'm just a nerd for this stuff, so I understand <laughs> that this isn't a prescription for everybody to go do, because it does take work, right? Right. But it's a way for me to gauge what lens like how the world and how the extra other planes kind of look on the party like do they see them as good or evil because there are things that are normally considered evil that when done for the right cause becomes a good action and selfishness as evil is a bit of a slippery slope because there is cheating robbing you know right killing out of spite a bunch of other stuff However, like, where is the line drawn on selfishness? Because, you know, if you have two of something and you just kind of keep them both for yourself and you like don't give to somebody who has none, does that is that an evil action or is that just you kind of minding your own business, not really fucking around, not really messing with much? Right. There, there's a line that needs to be drawn somewhere because there is a line where selfishness becomes evil. But then there's a line where it's like. No, I'm not going to I'm not at, I'm at checkout and I'm not going to give my change to the poor. Right. Like mm-hmm. every time you go to checkout and you scan your card and they're like, you want to give 50 cents to the poor? It's like, eh, not really. Is that an evil action or is that more neutral? There's all there's a whole lot of nuance that goes into it. Right. Like if I can give an example from Pathfinder, which I think is really good. One of the most popular gods in Pathfinder is Saren Ray, the Dawnflower. She's basically a fire angel. And that's a really badass name. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and she's characterized as neutral good, but her followers, all they have to be is just of good alignment is the idea. Right. However, again, I don't believe that people 
are necessarily in alignment. So basically exhibit right. good behaviors. Her edicts, which you should do, destroy the spawn of Rovagug. So any of uh, that god's followers you need to destroy. Spawn being like they're monsters, not like people. Right. Okay. That that's making more sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, spawn. It's 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 in caps. Spawn of Rovaga. So it's like any of his like things that he creates. Mm-hmm. Protect allies. Pretty general. So yeah, yeah. I can that. see an even an evil god saying that that's a good idea. All right. Uh, provide aid to the sick and wounded, and seek and allow redemption. Right. Okay. The, so those are the edicts. And then she's got anathema, right? Which is like, if you do any of these things, then you lose any powers that she might be granting you as like a cleric or something. So if you create undead, she don't like that. She takes your her power away from you. If you lie, just straight up lie. Does it even white lies? Like, don't lie. Oh, just like, just like, do not say anything that is not like that is inherently untrue do not deceive do not deceive people uh with lies right like that's what i'm i'm guessing if you just don't say anything she's not i guess she's not about like sneaking around and the sort of like diplomatic or political type stuff so if you're a follower of serenray you're not subtle (laughs) i'm guessing right deny it also, do not deny a repentant creature an opportunity for redemption. So don't, like, execute someone who wants to repent. Okay. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I do have a question. Just sorry yeah. to interrupt because this is interesting. Yeah. I've not looked into Pathfinder too much, regrettably, because I know it's an amazing system. But when it comes to do not deny a repenting creature redemption, what what would a player do if, say, a creature's like, you know dying or whatever repenting whatever they have a chance to strike them down but they have a big like gut feeling that this person's being insincere something you can't prove but you're like this guy just wants to get out of me killing him so he can turn right back around and start attacking people um does the guy judge action or intent more do you think well the last anathema is if you fail to strike down evil that is also seen as anathema to uh or anathema. Okay. I don't, a, a, anathema? Anathema? A word. I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> so, so essentially, if, you know, as, as a follower, if you are convinced that this person is, like, if it's a person, right, and they, you think they're lying and they want to hurt people, but they express that they want to uh, repent, I think by, because people aren't necessarily evil, you have to give them that opportunity. You need to seek analog redemption. You got to believe that people can become good because that's what Saren Ray is about. Okay. But the, the big thing here is that Saren Ray is not the god. This is a sentient being who is a god because she is immortal and has lots of power, but is not all knowing and all powerful. There are other gods that compete with Saren Ray. And these are just what she, this is what she's about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That is why it gets a little bit a little bit muddy um, when you call creatures gods, because generally in the most popular sense of the word, right? Like the Abrahamic sense that billions of people subscribe to. Mm-hmm. God is, you know, omnipotent, all good, right? That's what they generally believe. And God is the highest, like the like the highest possible level of goodness and omnipotence so when we talk about D and like a pantheon of gods 
it is interesting because there's always that bit of clarification that comes mm-hmm. with it when you talk about a certain god's morality. It's like, oh yeah, um, you know, this is just their take. This is what they think is good. This is what they believe in personally. I don't know. It, I don't mean. I don't say that to mean anything, and it's right. not a critique of the game. It's just. Uh, it's not even a critique of the usage of the word. It's just. It does confuse people when we start talking about morality. Um, so it's it's just a bit funny and not fun. You know, yes. you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think you kind of just mm-hmm. have to be very general about it. when you're running a game, you know, like you can't if, for example, if someone claims to be a good guy, maybe they're playing a paladin uh, oath of uh, like devotion, you know, the classic lawful good paladin. Right. And. An enemy, last enemy, like a knoll, for example, is running away. They've dropped their weapon and their back is turned and they're running away. And the paladin throws a javelin with or like or rushes up and smites them essentially and kills them. Mm -hmm. Now, as a DM, I would rule that this is not uh, like this does not follow. You're not following your tenets as a oath of devotion paladin. Right. Right. Oath of devotion wouldn't do that. They right, might capture them, and knock more, them out. Much more benevolent, usually. Yeah, yeah. If you're oath of conquest or oath of vengeance, okay, yeah, sure, no, that would make sense. You would totally do that. Yeah, exactly. But I would be, I would be a stickler about your oath because if you're gonna play a paladin, which is a very powerful class, you need to stick to those role playing things. That's oh, what it's absolutely. kind of about. Absolutely, yeah, no, because yeah. if you if you take a class as powerful as like a cleric or a paladin, like. They are meant to be powerful, but they're also meant to be bound by their oath or their rules. Like, that's kind of what reigns in their power. They can't just use it willy-nilly for whatever they see fit. Right. That's, I mean, that's kind of, that's the main thing. Like, a druid who doesn't give a shit about nature, I'm going to say, like, if they, for example, are destroying nature or they don't care, they're not defending nature, if they try to, like, commune and get their spells back, I'm going to say, you don't get your spells back. For some reason, when you try to commune with nature, your connection is severed, which means like, you know, and then they were like, what, what? That's that's bullshit. It's like, no, you're not. Your heart isn't in it. You're you're allowing forests to be do- or something. Yeah, exactly. Like you you're are allowing you're not doing be- what a druid would do, which mm-hmm. is to protect your domain or nature in general. Like you're maybe uh, like, for example, someone's playing a druid class, but then they're like taking bribes from the king and they're just allowing deforestation to happen in their domain like you're gonna lose your power sorry oh absolutely you know in one of those kinds of campaigns uh where a lot of responsibility is put on the players then yeah absolutely that is a well i would even say like a moderate amount of responsibility is put on the players then yeah i think that's absolutely a really good idea mm-hmm. you know Kind of, I don't tend to go that far with like new players who just kind of want to hit goblins and, you know, run around in a dungeon smashing shit. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when it comes to a really in-depth campaign where you want to explore these characters and what they stand for and what they do, it's really interesting to introduce consequences. And, you know, more experienced players love this stuff. They love the responsibility that they now have. Like, oh, I'm going to be held to act in a certain way if i assign my power to something that you know isn't me right like paladin cleric druid right they draw power from external sources so it's like oh if i'm getting power from something that's not me 
I got to play by something that's not my rules always. Right. Of course, it helps if they're personally aligned that way. But I don't see the taking away of power from players as a always bad thing to do. Yeah, I think that there are lots of times when it's really super justified. The only reason I went on this tangent a little bit is because um, <laughs> I suspect my fans will be watching this, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, hey, wait. Is Crit Crab 4 taking away player agency, which I'm still not for. I'm just uh, I'm what I'm for is making the players. Uh, m- this rule mostly applies for more experienced players who have consented to this, you know, session zero where it's like you got to behave this way or bad things could happen. Right. Mm-hmm. If you choose to play by this God's rules, you kind of need to do that if you want to keep your power. Yeah. Right. And of course, no damage that isn't reversible, right? Like you can become more, you know, you can realign yourself, right? But still, I do think that that is something that I've done. Like that's something that I've done. And it's really cool when the players realize they only ever realize it when something bad happens. But when they realize like, oh, wait, what I do matters. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really good. I want to clarify, too, for listeners. I'm not saying be a dick to your players for the fun of it like i'm not you know it's each class has a specific thing about it right like some people Mm -hmm. might say it's not fair to take away uh say a cleric or a a cleric's power for example because they did something you know because the player wanted to do something a specific way they're like you know well i don't think it's fair that you took away my power but like the wizard gets to keep theirs and it's like well hold on though the wizard has their own drawbacks like i could do something do. to they take do. their spell book away and then they can't prepare new spells they are stuck with whatever they prepared and then they have to make a new spell book which is really labor intensive and expensive you know there are, i mean oh yes and that's and, I, and that's a drastic thing i wouldn't necessarily do that i would i i've done it once uh just to kind of mess around with my player like uh, i had a kid pickpocket his spell book mm. and then he had to chase him through the city right, right? like that's that's and it was yeah. funny like that yeah. that can work but like i'm not gonna just destroy someone's spell book because i want to be <laughs> oh, yeah. a dick it's more no, like no. like yeah if if, for, if something like that were to happen it would have to be something that not only affected them but like everybody lost some measure of power so it wasn't i didn't feel like it was just bullying a player you know again like mm-hmm. looking at for example a warlock i mean you're it's baked into it you have a patron they want you to do certain things and so if you want to get level ups as a warlock you need to you need to do the things that your patron asks you to do right yes and and the way that i make it different from the cleric is the cleric has more spell slots and is overall a more powerful caster but a God can withdraw their power from the cleric at any time they see fit. They generally don't, but if the cleric is not following their tenets, they can lose their power and have to redeem themselves in the eyes of that god to get it back, right? Right. Whereas with the warlock, every level is a bargain. So, like, when you do the thing that you were supposed to do for the patron, you get your level up. And then it's fine. If you decide to stop doing what the patron asks, you can't level up in Warlock anymore, at least not from that patron. You'd have to find another patron to keep going. 
And like you can keep what you have, but essentially you're kind of stymied. So basically, but the thing is a patron can be talked to, whereas like your God is kind of so far away and so above you that you have to be super high level to even have a, a hope to talk to your God. You know what oh, I mean? Oh yeah. Like when you get super high level, then you can start communicating them. Well, with a warlock, you know, it's more like a business agreement. Right. Like it's like, it's like, it's like, a, like, it's like taking out a loan. Yeah. It's like an arch like, or something is like, so I need you to retrieve an item for me. But like, other than that, like, you can do whatever you want. You know, it's not, it's a lot yeah. looser. Oh, yeah. Like, there are less moral, uh, moral implications of what you can and can't do there are sometimes like sometimes they'll say do not fuck with these people or like you know help these people right now but what i love about warlocks right Mm -hmm. warlocks are one of my favorite classes to run games for because you can do so much cool stuff with their patron uh you can enter it's a really easy way to shoehorn a side quest in if you're running low on ideas or whatever right or a really good way to introduce plot or story is to make their patron do something now, of course, it's good to do this in moderation because that does put the spotlight on the warlock pretty much solely uh, as the warlock's going to be the only person with a connection to the patron usually. Yeah. However, I do. I'm a little bit guilty of this. Some people really don't like this idea, but I love running solo side sessions during the campaign. You know, it's like sometimes it'll be over discord or like whenever the main group isn't together. I'll call out to the warlock and be like, hey, your patron has some business for you if you want to run like a solo side mission, right? Yeah. Which I really like. I like doing that with all my players. It's it's really fun and it kind of gives them an Avengers like feel, right? Like they're all kind of separate little dudes who all have their own lives, but then they come together and they're the super friends, right? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's that was a little mini tangent, but it's something I like doing and if you're a DM uh, that either has players that always have conflicting schedules, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you can catch one or two of them at a time and run little mini mini campaigns or mini story arcs for these characters only. It's a really cool way to kind of cheat past never having time for everybody at once. Yeah. It's really cool. That's That's a really good idea, especially for like... For warlocks specifically, but like any any character, and I think that's that's something I want to touch on uh, to kind of close off this specific topic is that every class has certain role playing things kind of baked into it, and you should talk with your DM about how you want to play a class, right? For example, if you want to play a cleric, but you're not very maybe religious in real life and you don't really want to follow God even in role play because you're just like, eh, I want to do what I want to do, then talk to your DM about how you manage to get divine power without following a specific God. Is there a concept or like a, you know, it's a domain, right, that you're getting it from. So how are you mm-hmm. in, embodying this concept and how do you feel about it? Like the idea of a cleric is you you worship you pray you're devoted to something usually a god but if you're not a god then you need something to be devoted to that's the whole point of being a cleric oh yeah it's assigning uh it's assigning like getting your power from uh something that is way beyond yourself right right it's it's, the idea. it's baked into it it's just like if someone wanted a multi-class they're like i am a sorcerer and i have a bloodline that gives me power pretty easy anybody can just have a bloodline that, is, that awakens very easy story absolutely thing. Yeah. very luck of the draw then they say i want to um do a uh a one level dip into hexblade warlock for all the 
bullshit that that gets. I'd say, how are you finding the hex plate? Where's that coming from? How how are you getting that? Right? It's got to make mm-hmm. sense in the story. It's a patron, right? Like you are getting powers from a patron. You can't. If I'm yes. the DM and you're just like, I'm just now a hex blade for one level. I decided. I'd say, hold the phone. No, you're not. <laughs> I yeah. I didn't I didn't uh give you a patron. How did you come across this? It better make sense story wise. You need to convince me to allow that because I know how powerful of a multi class that can be, and I know that most people will just do it for the mechanics and not the story. I'm not saying you can't do it. Period. I'm saying you better have a good fucking reason for doing it. Right? Oh, here's a here's an example in uh my Curse of Strahd game. Um. Uh, somebody decided to multi-class in uh, three classes. Oh, my. Yeah. They started off as a wizard, and they had a very good reason for being a wizard. Then they really liked the mechanics of the forge cleric, and they were like, "I w- can I do this? And I, I asked, well, how? who are you worshiping? How are you a forge cleric? And they gave me their reason for that. I want to like still sort of hash that out with them. I think that that could be built up a bit more, but I understood why they wanted to do it. So I allowed it. Right. So their first two levels were one cleric, one wizard, very kind of adaptable caster. But then, yes, their third levels artificer. And it was because they met an NPC in the game who was an artificer who died and gave their like infusions and stuff to him to now like carry on their legacy so that their research isn't lost. And he's all about research, right? As like a wizard person. Right, and, as a wizard usually is. And because they're already a forge cleric and they build the stuff, they're like, I will take on the mantle. And they took a level of artificer. So now they're split three ways, which is a lot of the times really bad <laughs> mechanics oh, yeah, wise. It's un, you know, you, you might be, you just kind of have a lot of low level stuff right you can do a lot of different things but you can't do a lot of powerful things when you do this type of thing and i admired that because the reason they did it was for the story and to be adaptable that's what they want right and so i Mm -hmm. i really was like you were taking a mechanical hit for the story and i applaud that so what i'm going to do is i'm going to give them I think they are going to go two levels of Artificer. So instead of being a half caster, I'm just going to give them one full caster level to kind of keep them at pace with everybody else. Like everything else will be the same, but they'll essentially get one more slot level than they normally would. Right. So so they'll have three first level slots and two second level slots at level three instead of having just the three first level slots that you normally get. Basically, it doubles their slot power and it makes it so that they're not feeling like they're not as powerful as everybody else you know yeah yeah definitely um that's that's something i really like and it does very much depend on the tone and style of the game like i think you and i both we enjoy a lot of deeper role play experiences definitely i i when i describe my campaigns uh and i would say most of my games like one shots you know two or three shots like mini campaigns uh even some of my longer campaigns i would describe as like bloodier adventure time right it's kind of kind of mimi there is a story and it is really you know important but they're mostly goofing off and having a fun time which i like you know it's more whimsical you know uh there's not too much consequence however i would say a lot of my games also have a 
you know, consequence matters a lot more. And that's when I would introduce more class restrictions. But what's really interesting is players can see limitations, especially the experienced ones, right? After they've done, they've kind of goofed off all that they were gonna, and now they want a bit more of a deep, rich experience. Yeah. They tend to take limitations and think they're really cool, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm working with what I have here. Uh, scarce resources, you know, strict, like kind of a like 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 with the cleric or the druid, right? Like, oh, I am bound by my oath or these rules and I need to justify exactly. them to myself. And exactly. they they think it's really cool. A lot of players, you know, it's why we play games like The Last of Us, right? Where you have a very limited amount of bullets and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I only have this much in my chamber. I need to act with that in mind. And I think a lot of players just love getting into it, right? It's not restriction for the DM's sake. Right. It's restriction for the player's sake in the game. Um, yes, absolutely. So I, mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's the thing about the domains too. Like cleric, I, you know, I, I said that you can have your powers taken away as a cleric, right? Yes. Luckily, the domains are not necessarily good or evil. They're tied to gods of different alignments and different tenets. So if you don't like the way one god does it, you can swap to a different god that has the same domain but has a cooler system to follow, right? Like, you don't right. have to be only to... That's the, the cleric. Like, if you're like, I want to be a cleric, but I want to be a shithead. I want to just be a bad guy. Guess what? There are domains and gods for that. And you can still be a cleric and get all these cleric powers. You can even use radiant energy if you want and still be a mm-hmm. shithead as long as you're following the tenets of whatever god that you decided to pick. But, you, you know, right. you just got to choose that limitation ahead of time. You got to know what you're how you're going to play this guy. And if you need to change, talk to your DM and they'll be willing to, like, transfer you to a different thing. Right. Like you can change as you play. Oh, I do think that a lot of players, um, this, you get this with newer players for sure, uh, that have a very locked into the idea of like a forgotten realms setting, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, if I choose this domain, I have to follow this God, right? Um, which is not inherently true at all. It's just a lot of people take the forgotten realms and run with it, which is not a bad thing. It's a good setting. So Yeah, no, absolutely. Ditto what you said. If you like a domain, it doesn't bind you to a certain rule set. It doesn't bind you to a certain god, I mean. And, you know, that that influences the rule set. There are you could you could even take like domain that seems benevolent and just find an evil god for it, and now you're like a hell priest. Yeah, right? like light, or something like that. The light domain exactly. is like, oh, that's supposed to be good, and generally it is seen as good because you know, like light is radiance, and radiant is positive plane, and that's where all the upper planes are, which are the good planes. So yeah, of course you'd think that, but the idea of an evil being of light, like the dude, the spell sickening radiance is exactly that it is it makes mm-hmm. people sick and then you can blind people like like it be used to it's like okay for example i have used the spell inflict wounds before right and it is seen as an evil spell because you're sucking the life out of right. somebody inflict wound right how is that more evil than fucking fireball you know 
You know, yeah, it's the language. <laughs> it's the language that we come to associate with what we perceive as good and evil. Um, right. If someone dies as a result of your offensive spell and that person was not a bad person or didn't deserve to be killed because they weren't harming anybody, like they were an innocent, then you did an evil thing no matter how you did it. It didn't matter that you used like radiance or sacred word to do it or if you used like you know a skeleton that you raised to do it like either way that's evil the act is evil and so that exactly yeah makes you more evil than you were before that is an excellent point so yeah like one thing i'm a fan of you catch this in a lot of jrpgs and you know stuff like that is the darkness behind the light aesthetic right like seraphs or like angels that are actually bad guys and i just think that it's really cool you usually get it in games that are like you know rebellious or whatever because they're also seen from a point of authority but Mm -hmm. that's where you get the aesthetic from of like uh what was it inflict wounds Mm -hmm. uh or um you know radiant evil basically Yes. I mean, it's it's, it's the inverse it's of cool. the good just, necromancer, you know, like the guy mm-hmm. that raises the dead, but uses them to like till the fields and protect the villages like that's those are good acts that are helping the community. It's just icky, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, you and mm, one, one second. I just got excited. I just get ex- That's why <laughs> I prefer using an order and chaos based alignment system. Because it frees you from needing to lock things down as good or evil. It's like, you know, the good necromancer would be chaotic. He would. While evil, you know, radiance would be order inherently. Uh, And I just think that there's a lot more liberty. There's a lot more you can do with more of a, you know, X, like single axis slider. (laughs) I'm just a fan of that system since I've heard of it because... You know, players can just say, oh, I am a paladin or whatever. I'm on the side of order uh, or I've already been over this, but you get it. Yeah, no. So let's 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 shift gears. We've talked a lot about alignments. I think that's what I'm going to name this video. The D&D alignments featuring Crick Crab, because that's essentially what we've we've uh, talked a lot. We have talked a lot about alignment, but it's something that I found super interesting because um, lately this is a little bit more personal, right? But lately, I've been really interested in philosophy. I've been reading a lot of stuff. I've been reading from a lot of different, uh, both uh, religious, what the what worldly religions might say are good and evil, what uh-huh. different philosophers might say are good and evil, humanist perspectives, uh, lots of other interesting things, and how we assign value to what good or evil is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, of course, reading a lot of this stuff is when I started realizing that I don't like the alignment system that much Um, because, I mean, it it works. It serves a simple purpose. I think it could work within one societal structure where everybody, everybody agrees to this set of rules and understands it. Right. But when it comes down to. An entire world with many different, you know, uh, many different uh, beliefs and ideologies and cultures. It gets harder to impose the same morality structure on all of them. It it really does, yeah. especially when it's a nine block grid. 
that's yeah that's i mean that i I understand also the idea of using the order versus chaos as your morality instead of good versus evil like that makes sense generally i like having both but i just you just got to keep it general good is generally selfish selfless acts evils generally selfish order is generally in favor of well order and and structure and keeping promises and and you know being by your word following agreements like there's law essentially like following law mm-hmm. whatever that law might be maybe it's the law of your deity maybe it's the law yeah, like of your in Rome. tribe or your culture yeah um it doesn't even need to be if you're a paladin of like uh, a lawful good deity and it's like don't lie keep your promises that type of stuff and you go to like a lawful evil aligned kingdom you know ruled by rulers who are generally like that you don't mm-hmm. have to follow their laws because it conflicts with your tenants you know what i mean like right, you have yes. your own tenants to follow and that makes you lawful or more so lawful by nature even if because you might see this government as illegitimate they are not doing what your God believes would be good for the people and a change of leadership is in order, which means that yes. you would not, but you wouldn't resort to subterfuge and spying. You would be in open warfare against the government. You would say, I am against this government. I am out publicly because I cannot lie. I'm not going to like pretend I'm for you. I oppose it, right? Which might put you exactly. in danger, but you could lead a resistance and you'd still be lawful, even though you're doing what some might consider oh, yeah, chaotic ordered things. resistance, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I I agree. I think that what it does require is everybody at the table agreeing on what generally agreeing on what good and evil is, which isn't hard. Most people have the same rough idea of what good and evil is, you know? Yeah. Like, I would say most people have the same outline, but some people, you know, it's like when it comes down to debates on what should or shouldn't be legal, then, you know, or like how far you can go in this or that respect. Uh, take capital punishment for instance now it's i do i do think that the ideas of lawful good like you like you mentioned it makes sense um the waters get a little bit more muddy when you represent one kingdom like you're an emissary or an ambassador or whatever and you're in a vastly different area it's like now are you chaotic because your laws don't apply here or I mean, I guess there are neutral alignments, but it feels like kind of a cop-out answer, um, though maybe it's not. That's mainly my gripe, I think. I usually just kind of ditch alignment altogether and let... I've already been over that. Yeah. I mean, here's here's something, and this is also... I, the only campaign that I'm DMing right now is Curse of Strahd, so pardon me if I talk a lot about it <laughs> for people... Oh, yeah, Curse of Strahd's an amazing game. Uh, oh, it's my favorite. It's totally my favorite. A, a lot of people agree there, myself included. Well, I actually prefer Waterdeep Dragon Heist, but I, know, yeah. I would love to play that. I haven't played that yet, uh, but I heard that one's really fun. But I was going to say, like, let's look at, for example, Vampire Spawn. All right. My my party Ooh. just uh, defeated a Vampire Spawn and met a vampire. So, like, these are intelligent creatures and... They are they are compelled by their curse of vampirism and their undead nature to feed on uh, the blood of the living, right? Now, how you run vampires in your game is up to you. Vampire, there's lots of different ways to do it. I mean, just look at Twilight, right? Uh, <laughs> clearly, not everybody follows the same rules for vampires, but oh yeah, uh, yeah, and you can always like change it up for your games. 
the way that I generally do it for like, for example, let's say you're a good character and you were bitten three times by a vampire and you become a vampire spawn, right? Mm-hmm. This is a forced change in alignment. You are now an evil creature because you are bound to the will of who sired you, right? Yeah. And you are compelled, your hunger compels you to feed on the blood of the living. If your sire did not command you not to touch a certain person, right? So like you because you cannot choose to not do these things, you have lost your ability to make the choice to not do evil, which makes you evil by nature, even if you don't want to, even if it pains you, right? Like you could be, for example, you could remember your whole living life, but the fact that you are a vampire spawn, it it's like torture. And you might even beg for death when a Claire comes along and you're like, you've, you know, killed your loved one or whatever. And you're like, please just put me out of my misery. I can't stop myself, right? Right. You could still be evil, aligned only because of that curse not because you want to be evil so there are like examples of forced changes in alignment like that that can be really compelling story-wise as long as you're not like i'm very wary of doing that to a player like i wouldn't want to put that on a player because like you said takes their agency away so they you need to talk with your players beforehand if that is going to be something on the table right yeah absolutely yeah yeah um that does also that does also because this is something that I've had a little bit of a disagreement with as well with with how alignments are portrayed. I do. I do agree with you that forced alignment change can work on NPCs or other important plot characters that are not the players. Uh, that's uh-huh. I think that that can be a really cool, uh, you know, uh, plot vehicle for sure. Yeah. However, there's also the idea that ogres are chaotic evil, right? They uh-huh. they have an intelligence score of five, which means that they're about at the human level of understanding that a toddler might have. They're slightly more intelligent than a wolf, which has a three. It's like, okay, so if we're imposing a system of morality on an ogre, right, on something... The wolves are unaligned, even though they will usually attack you on sight in the game. Uh, They're mostly used as enemies. An ogre is not much smarter. It kind of doesn't think. It just smashes stuff. It it has slight tactical ability. Uh, It knows a little bit more about smashing stuff and fainting or whatever. You know, maybe more maneuvers. But all in all, it's largely just a beast that doesn't really know what it's doing. So... I understand why they made it chaotic evil, right? It's a big, scary monster that only cares about itself. But you can say the same for many beasts or other creatures, you know, especially the hostile ones. Yeah. So I I would say it's a point of fact, though, D&D is doing away with assigned or ascribed alignments in all their I love that. Yeah. Yes, I was a huge fan of it. And that's why I'm not coming. That's why I've not mentioned Wizards of the Coast failing. Like, I don't right, say that. Right, right, right. Um, I just, I don't think, I just think that alignment is something that they've always had. And it had a huge, like, um, they had a lot. They had, like, entire pages dedicated to going more in depth and telling you what's right and wrong. And it made a lot of sense back then, especially because alignment was deeply tied into the gameplay. I just feel like in 5th edition, they kind of carried it over because it's always been there. But 
people understandably, I'm not the only person, I'm not saying anything profound, right? I'm saying things that have been said for years now. Right. That's just like, is this super necessary? Uh, and Wizards has responded, not really. So, you know, like we're we're largely doing away with prescribed alignments just by virtue of being this thing, which I think is an amazing step. Really good idea. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, this isn't just me whining. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm still of the opinion that anything that is just a living creature shouldn't have an ascribed alignment right it they they are they might be prone to making certain behavioral decisions that you could ascribe alignments to but they themselves are not like an ogre should not ping if someone's trying to detect evil like they shouldn't pop up which is actually the spell detect evil they wouldn't you would detect fey you would detect uh celestials or fiends you know or undead like you detect mm -hmm. things that are by their nature a certain way but not necessarily if something is good or evil. So, like, I, I agree. Ogres are just large brutes that are trying to survive like any other creature, and they their best survival strategy, as proven through time, is just beating up, you know, caravans, taking their shit, or maybe, or maybe just yeah. hunting with a club and, and, you know, taking out an elk and then dragging it back to a cave. You know, like, they're not necessarily, yeah, like, like, they're not an advanced you know species yeah, of creature I understand. yeah i understand the chaotic bend mm -hmm. right yeah uh but just, i mean and i wouldn't say they're inherently good but i wouldn't say that they're inherently good much more than they are inherently evil it's just they've evolved that way they've evolved to smash stuff eat it and then go back into their hole and that's just what they do yeah um, i mean have you heard simple of as that have you heard of garg and moon slicer no i have not this is a story that I think uh, you would really enjoy. And I have a, a Word document that I copied. I don't remember who wrote this, but you can probably find it online too. Essentially, it is a, a paladin dies and they have like a sentient sword that's good aligned. And uh, their god allows them to make a last request. And they said, I roll to leave the world a better place. And they roll a net 20. And so after... They rolled that, and Ogre finds the sword. Mm. And then it's it's written from the perspective of Garg, the Ogre, and what they do uh, when they find the sword. The sword compels them. It kind of takes over very much like a force change of alignment. Compels them to do good acts until eventually they choose it on their own because they understand the benefit of doing good okay. and how that is a better survival strategy for them than what they were doing before. And they become good naturally, or they do good things naturally. It's very good. Anyone That's who hasn't really read cool. Garg and Moonslicer, I recommend that. So, what what exactly is that story like? Um, it's I think it's a Reddit story. Uh, I could uh, link. I would really like to see that uh, for people watching this now. Uh, maybe maybe you have a slight idea of what a future video could be. Maybe uh, <laughs> gonna be looking through this. Uh, so I love the story. It's one of the reasons I love playing paladins. Yada yada yada. I'm not crying. You're crying. Okay, so it's a good freaking story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it is. Okay, from 2015. So this is this is kind of old, but I will uh, I will send you. Looks like some people are getting the uh, cool boy Shane sneak peek experience. <laughs> this is it. This is it. Okay, seven years ago. Control C. Uh, I'm going to send this to you. Um, but yeah, this is maybe one of my favorite uh, stories in D&D. &D. 
okay. um, because it's it's a it's a dramatization, I think, of something that actually was written or or something that actually happened. I don't know who to credit. I don't know who actually if the person who wrote this was the original writer or if they copied it from something else. But this is something that's sort of just kind of kind of like the legend of uh, that bear that rolled so high on its charisma checks that nobody could tell that it was a bear because it kept succeeding. Um, <laughs> right, like, right, okay. Yeah, Sir Barrington, I think, was it? Yeah, Sir Barrington. I, I did uh, an animated video uh, where I retold the tale of Sir Barrington. It was pretty funny. Uh, that's This is a very good little story. People can look it up or they can wait uh, in case you do end up making yes. uh, a video on this. Um, but, uh, essentially that's another example. It's the opposite of the vampire spawn thing where it's like an item is forcibly basically with an item though, an intelligent item, you make a save against it to resist it. And I would actually say if it was a player who got inflicted with vampirism, they would make saves too. So like they could resist the curse, but it would depend on. Uh, which like it would depend on what vampire bit them it would depend on what they're resisting like if they're just resisting the urge to feed like i think that's a resistible thing oh but yeah, if their sire yeah but if their sire commanded them to do something there's a magical sort of connection there that they would have to somehow break in order to be free of it oh yeah like um yeah have you ever watched or read the book uh by Anne rice um interview with the vampire no but i've heard of it yeah no it's really good it's a lot of it, a lot of the plot is around this guy who gets bitten by this vampire, right? And mm-hmm. he is trying desperately not to feed on people. And it kind of, a lot of the story follows his struggles with balancing his humanity with his vampirism. I think it was really well done. Um, I watched the movie and read the book, both really good, would recommend. But it's a lot of what you were talking about. Yeah, it's... Uh... I, I do. There's there's something more interesting about someone with vampirism resisting the curse. Right? Yes. It's just like a like a lycanthrope. Another great example of a curse trot. Um, like lycanthropes, uh, you know, there's usually a difference between like a born lycanthrope and a, uh, a turned lycanthrope. And not all lycanthropes give like where ravens, for example, are uh, or where bears are examples of like. Lycanthropes that are not inherently like vicious um, by nature when they turn, they've got like other sorts of behaviors they're kind of compelled to do. Mm-hmm. The behavior itself isn't like, again, good or evil. Like I wouldn't say you had a, a change in alignment if you were bitten by a werewolf. I would say that you might, you know, y- you could either choose to accept your curse, which would then mean that you'd have more control over when you change, but you would in like you would be compelled um, and have to make saves against attacking helpless creatures yes. because of the predatory nature within you. Whereas if you chose to resist your curse entirely, you wouldn't have to make saves while you were a hu- in human quote unquote form. But if full moon comes out, you lose control of your character entirely and I get to play you as a werewolf. That's the, that's the compromise. Either you accept your power and then you make saves to resist your bestial nature or you resist, which means that you don't ever have to make those saves while you're not shifted. But when a full moon happens, uh, well, 
give me your sheet. Yeah. See what we can do here. You know, I mean, that's that's the compromise. So I would always give a players like a choice in that. And that's less of an alignment thing and more of just an agency thing. But it's, you know, if you're going to play in a game like Curse of Strahd or any sort of like uh, Grim Hollow is another great example, of like a horror themed like world, you know, right, Atharis, yes. I think it's called. Like that's, you know, that's just something that you kind of talk about in session zero. Like this is something that could happen. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think that you of course you get you get it out of the way in session zero but i like to apply the same rules that i do with death in dnd i do this like of course when you get the really experienced players who just want a gritty experience right mm -hmm. then i take off a lot of the safety wheels like the training wheels yeah and just kind of let them run them like let them kill themselves if they're doing stuff right mm -hmm. however i can't remember what game this is but I, this is my main philosophy when playing with most players, right? Uh, there was this video game, and I forget what it is, but if you're about to do something really stupid that'll get you killed, this little pop-up screen will come up, and it'll say, doing this action will kill you. Do you proceed? And it gives you the option to say yes or no, right? Uh -huh. Of course, I don't say it that bluntly, but you know the DM's trademark, like, are you sure? Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I don't, of course there is present danger in combat, but I don't like players just dying in your average combat. It feels icky. What I prefer is, of course they can kill themselves and they have killed themselves in basic combat, but I like to, I don't like telling them bluntly because it does knock the wind out of the, you know, momentum. Yeah. But I do like to really emphasize in my narration the amount of peril that this person is in and if he and like the amount of risk he's taking on and you get it a lot like when say a character is going to sacrifice themselves for like you know to save their friends or whatever um you know i'll allude to the fact that there's an absolutely unstoppable like i use total adjectives like i use adjectives that you know i describe it in a way I don't leave windows open for nuance or like a chance of survival, really. I just say like an unstoppable horde, right? Yeah. Or an undefeatable beast, right? Mm -hmm. And I uh, describe it as like, there is no winning in this situation, basically. <laughs> I say that without saying that. And yeah. it does, watching the player, this happens very rarely. Usually they duck out of there because they know what I mean. But watching on the rare occasion where a player sees that and willingly takes it on themselves is really powerful. It's it's just really good. Yeah. Usually they take that on because they see the benefit gained as more important than their character. And it, it's it's just it's really cool. And it gives the player the choice, really. So I think that that's really good. I I agree. I think. There, you know, I am not opposed to player death. In fact, I think one of the best things about D&D &D is trying to win, I suppose, uh, against odds stacked against you, essentially. Right. So, like, yeah, nothing makes me feel lamer than when a DM uh, nudges the the scales and pulls their punches to allow me oh, to survive. Oh, yeah. no, no. no lethality is <laughs> part of it that. it's it makes the story more interesting and i feel better when having defeated something that might have been 
or, or should have been lethal that should have killed me right like oh yes like I, as a dm i am not going to be unfair like uh, i said that my players met a vampire that vampire was way higher cr than them what could have if it wanted to probably killed the party so of course i didn't make it hostile towards them because that would be shitty and mean. That's, that would, yeah, that would that's be just, really dickish. That's rock's fall. <laughs> that's, that's all that is. You know, that's like a mean thing to mm-hmm. do. So they know, they're aware that this thing is much more powerful than they are and might have allies that they don't know about, right? And so they play carefully and they use the rules they know about vampires to protect themselves. Like it wanted to enter a building and they were like, you're not welcome in here. And so he had to stay outside while he said his spiel and then he left, right? So like... Yes. That lets them know there are certain threats that are very lethal. They might not necessarily be hostile, though. And you know certain ways to protect yourself against them should it come to that. So it gives you this sort of like there are these like risky entities and you have rules that you can play by and you can formulate strategies, which is what makes role playing so much goddamn fun because then you can weigh your risks. So if, for example... Like, if Strahd shows up in front of the party at this stage in the game, they ought to know they cannot kill him. <laughs> yes. Right? It's too early, and they're not high. They know, like, they probably couldn't even take on a regular vampire at the level that they're at. Eventually, you know, they might be able to. But if he shows up, it should be very obvious. I shouldn't even have to really even say it that they cannot win oh, yeah. against Strahd. And if a character decides for the you know for the story that they want to like fight strap because they're like not they don't not insightful enough to know the danger they're in i would not kill them outright as strad i might knock them out with a backhand you know and just demonstrate yeah. how like much of a difference in power there there could be or like could take them out of the fight in some way where it's like effortless for him but I'm not going to take away their backstory and all the time that they worked on their character flippantly because they wanted to do something for the story. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good idea. Uh, you've said a lot here. And there are two big things I want to get into because, um, yeah, you kind of covered all you. Yeah, it was really good. Um, two things is uh, two big words, I guess. First would be communication. Usually... Unlike me, you don't have to go into like these big diatribes about how much peril there is, right? Uh, If the players have an understanding of their own mortality, and this is really up to the player, but if they understand that they're in danger, right? Especially if in a session zero, say, you say, hey, this game, there is a big risk of dying, you know? Uh, You need to be careful. You need to know what you need to know what you're doing. That establishes a precedent to where the player's understand that they're uh, that they're a little bit fucked and that they need to play carefully it's really good when you communicate well you don't need to tell the players outright that they're screwed right uh because they'll just know now another thing is weaknesses this is a little bit off topic but i really like using it is too often i run a boss fight right yeah um and not too often i run a boss fight but too often i run a boss fight and it just kind of comes to a point where they're just hitting numbers against each other, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, rolling dice, just kind of standing in one position, everybody smacking the thing. One thing that I've done that I really like is what you mentioned with Strahd, you know, using rules that you understand about this creature, 
uh, weaknesses, vulnerabilities. And they don't all have to be combat-oriented, right? Like, maybe there are things you can do to evade or trick or, uh, you know, uh, in, in combat cases, like sucker punch the creature in a weak spot, right? And I think that it's underutilized. I don't think enough monsters have, like, foils, right? Yeah. Like, ways to... Like, like what you mentioned with Strahd, with, like, using vampire rules. I think that's really cool. And it adds so much more to that creature than just making him a, a hittable enemy. Right. Or, like, a, a, another example would be, like, a troll. Using fire damage to stop its regeneration is a very concrete yes. example of a weakness. Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, it's, used, it's used a lot, a lot of these weaknesses, but I feel like it's not used enough. I feel like these, a lot of these creatures exist as combat stat blocks. Yes. And I think, and of course it would take a ton of work to make, you know, and it might not, I understand why they didn't do this, but especially if it's a plot important monster, right? Like a boss fight right. or like a bad guy NPC. I really like dropping hints at ways you can foil this creature. Yeah. Uh, or like getting knowledge from an ancient tome or speaking to an important NPC and just kind of uncover, unraveling like the mystery on how to defeat this creature. Right. It's it's really, really fun. And just watching the player's eyes light up when they're like, wait, we can do this? You know, th th this is amazing. This is, increases our chances of survival by a ton. It's really fun and I love doing it. Yeah, it, it, it empowers the players because they get to figure out how to beat something that was going to be much more challenging it might still be a challenge but like now they've got a weapon that can hurt the thing right like oh yeah like what you mentioned with Strahd, you know he can just kind of backhand knock you out and you know but the more you learn like it's not all about just hitting him right it's about learned knowledge that you can apply against the creature right if it were just that makes it really and cool. this isn't even a spoiler like if it were just as easy as attacking Strahd and doing enough damage to take him down like then you know you wouldn't need to go through this whole story really like you would just need to be a high enough level and then just attack him but like Strahd is the main guy and he has certain things about him that make him different than the others right he's not like the other vampires right. he's not like the other girls um <laughs> he's you know he's got certain things about him that make him unique which means that he is a bigger threat because they're gonna learn like what works against certain enemies like vampire spawn or regular vampires but then maybe certain things might not apply to Strahd because he's not the same so they need to figure that stuff out that's kind of be part of like i mean everybody who is interested in curse of Strahd, like there's a curse right the whole point is figuring mm -hmm. that out yeah like you know it's it's that's yes. the story you know and you know some people allow you to then side with Strahd or or like not necessarily fight him like there's there's other ways to end the campaign um depending on the dming style or or the composition of the party and that's totally cool some people choose to to lose they choose to turn and betray the party as like as like a you know as like pre-planned sort of betrayal to you know make things interesting uh with the purpose of not necessarily beating their uh friends but actually to to lose to die because it's a more interesting story yeah. turn, you know. Definitely. Um, there's. You're right. I am going kind of all over the place with this, but. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm that. It wasn't a criticism. It's just like 
you said this and I found a really cool thing to talk about. And then you said this and I found another really cool thing I want to talk about. I spent like I spent like a minute just repeating the phrase like good communication uh, weaknesses, monster weaknesses. And I just kind of like I needed to remember that for oh, because, yeah, yeah. again, I got gotcha. really good conversation. A lot of really good ground to cover there uh, for sure. It's it's amazing. And it's amazing the kind of stuff you can get out of D&D for sure. It's TRPGs in general are probably like the definitely like the most malleable way to play games, like the, to mess around with and fit them to what you want and, you know, make your own experiences, even in written modules. Right. Mm -hmm. There's still so much room to explore different options. And I would say even in like pretty linear games like Curse of Strahd, right? Right. Uh, one player's experience is still going to be quite different from other players, from another player's experience. You know, same general framework, right? Yeah. But people are going to walk away with different cool stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the setting gives you a, an expectation and it's up to the DM to fulfill it or define it to be a certain way. Like... Because if I, if I, for example, was running Curse of Strahd, where Strahd was just like a Tarrasque, you know, and behaving in that way, that would be a lot less, like, gothic horror and a lot, like, more just weird. Like, you it know, wouldn't fit and uh, people would be fight, dissatisfied. You know, yeah. For sure. Uh, and, and, and to kind of veer away from that module, like, I think it's very easy for a DM, especially one who has a lot of stuff on their plate, to just pull from the monster manual. Right. And like you said, these are just like stat blocks and numbers and stuff like I know uh, just because of the amount of times I play that a goblin has seven hit points and 15 AC. Like, I just know that. And a plus five to hit, I'm pretty sure. Like, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong about all that stuff. I'm pretty sure that's the general um, <laughs> goblin statistics. And like. You know, like if I go up against a goblin, I already know about it. Having to role play like I don't know what a goblin is, is kind of tiring when I've done it a million times before. It's easy, easier than you could believe, uh, listeners, to reskin and create new creatures. Like undead especially. There's so many different kinds of undead you could create. Like, for example, like a zombie can easily be like, you know. Uh, modified to be like uh, like a fast zombie. So instead of being 20 feet around, it could run 50 feet around. It's like freaking... Uh, or or give something yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, an ability with its bonus action that it can do or something that like it, you know, normally wouldn't be able to to like power it up and then make it different in the game. So people are like, whoa, what the hell is this? You know, because it throws the experienced players for a loop and it gives that sense of mortality it gets uh, players out of their comfort zones if they go into a game expecting uh everything to be a certain way like you need to early on break those expectations like they hit a goblin for 10 damage and it doesn't go down they need to understand these aren't the goblins from the monster manual you know like these are individual characters with a specific maybe class levels or something right like oh oh yeah definitely sorry um yeah. i just Maybe no, no, I, 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 I kind of petered out there because that's just the end of my <laughs> thought there. But like, you know, mm -hmm. mix yeah, it no, up for sure, for sure. Change things. I will say this is this is a bit of a crit crab DM experience confession, right? 
but playing in I, most of my games have been run with like a two or three or one person party, right? I don't often run games for four or more people. When I do, it's super good. Most of my players, though, uh, like I mentioned earlier, can't be on the same time. So entire campaigns have been run with an army of two, right? Yeah. Anyways, that said, that made me realize really early on that if I want to make combat interesting, I need to change a lot of stats because I, you get two low-level characters you can't create fights that feel super epic. You just, it's not. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it, you know, they, they, they'll feel like, oh, this is all we can really do. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a couple goblins at a time or whatever. So very quickly I learned because my first uh, game was fourth edition, right? I just kind of ripped the minion idea from there. It's something I like doing one HP, but a decent chunk of damage, right? Uh, yeah. And that's what they do. So now all of a sudden they get to fight little hordes and just, you know, they walk away. Every hit is more meaningful and it's something they really enjoy. It's what you mentioned earlier about changing the monsters. These are not the monsters from the monster manual. I personally like kind of tailored these existing monsters to fit your experience. Mm -hmm. It's something I like. It's something I do all the time. I would say like I'll buff their attack, nerf their health. That's another thing I like doing is unless it's a boss fight, if it's a boss fight, they get a ton of health, right? If it's a more standard monster, generally they go down in between one and four hits. That's the that's my rule. Uh, They might have higher AC and more damage output, but I like fast combat. You know, I like fast paced, hard hitting combat. Um, Right. So that's just my personal style, though. And I could see somebody who wants kind of the opposite, a long, drawn out tactical experiences, right? Mm -hmm. With more resource management in mind, which I also think is really cool. So what, what I should also say is when it comes to understanding monsters, I do remember another thing about fourth edition, and that is that in the monster manual... Under every single creature's stat block, you could roll a d20, you could make a check, and depending on how high you roll on the check, you get a certain amount of knowledge about the creature, right? Mm -hmm. Like, say if it's a magical monster, right, like an elemental or something, if you roll high enough on nature, if you roll between, if you roll a 15, you understand the basic thing about elementals, right? Yeah. However, if you roll up to a 25 or higher than that, you understand the deepest aspects of its lore. It has a whole like written out lore blurb and it tells you all of its vulnerabilities, uh, all of the things they're strong against. And I also think that that's pretty cool. Um, I can see how there might be challenges running that in a fast paced combat setting. So I don't, I like to have them learn about these creatures more uh, in other settings. But I think that the idea is inherently I think that the it's a good idea that should be implemented more. I think one thing that I was a little bit disappointed by with the 5th edition Monster Manual is that they didn't really go too deep into the creature's lore. I mean, there was a good blurb there, but 4th edition, they had like these whole written out stories on how they were created and what purpose they serve and, you know, just tons of amazing lore about them that I really liked. And I'm not criticizing 5th edition by saying that, but 
if there was ever a 5.5 or, you know, an updated monster manual, uh, it would be cool to learn more about what these monsters are. And, you know, just lots of cool lore and cool stuff about them, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I didn't know that about 4th edition. Oh, yeah, look up the 4th edition. Maybe just, I don't know, look at pictures of some of these monsters. But, you know, there's a little picture, a little stat block, lots of juicy lore. Amazing. I haven't touched the 4th edition monster manual in, I think, almost 10 years now. So, you know. Yeah. But but still, there was lots of good stuff in there. I think that what you said has a lot of merit, uh, especially tailoring your monsters and stuff to the players uh you know needs and stuff like what i did before i even started uh dming curses rod was i took note of all the different people's like um ability scores and classes so i know what their saving throws are i know what their highest and lowest stuff is so i know if i want to make something challenging for a specific character i need to target them with a specific kind of saving throw and if i want to uh, make something challenging for a different character it's this type of thing and that means like i'm not gonna bully people but like if there is a like a reason that someone should have that challenge like it should be more difficult for them then i'm going to like be cognizant of that right and tailor it to this experience to make it more you know uh, for example if like if the barbarian is just kicking ass every encounter Maybe next time we're going to do a little mind magic and take over their will and have them attack their allies, right? Like, that's going to be a really good story moment because obviously it's not going to be enough to, like, TPK the party. I'm not going to go that far. But it'd be enough to, like, once they're free of the mind effect, maybe they'll reflect on the fact that they're, like, allowing themselves, essentially, to be taken advantage of because they go into these blind rages. They're not, like, thinking clearly. And, like, that's maybe something a weakness that they didn't know they had right yes yes weaknesses especially as much as i talk about monster weaknesses i'm also super for the players each of the individual characters having weaknesses a lot of this is more justified in role play backstory also mechanics like um you know a fighter or a paladin or a barbarian you know is more blind in their brain but also introducing role play weaknesses like personal failings in these characters character um what i mean by that is you know maybe fears like fears that kind of paralyze them or uh backstory reasons to just not take advantage or do this certain thing that would otherwise be beneficial a lot like how vampires don't enter houses uninvited it's like they're incapable of doing that because reasons um Having rules that exist like that for the players, the flaws area of the players sheet tried to do this, but I don't think that they provided enough, really. Like, it's easy to write down in your flaws, like, uh, I'm quick to anger or right. Yeah, that's that's a real easy one. It's it's really not the same, though. (laughs) Yeah, I like like some of the ones I really like are common is not my first language or uh, Ooh, I can't swim. I don't oh, that's know a really swim. good one. Yeah, yes. or or like uh, <laughs> I can't read. I'm illiterate. You know, these are surprisingly really debilitating in many situations. Yeah, really, but definitely. They're not like unlikely. Like, there's plenty. I know people who can't swim. Like uh, when I when I lived in China, like that was very like landlocked. 
and there weren't like a lot of swimming pools or even like rivers or lakes. So it was like a lot of people just never had the opportunity to swim and don't know how to do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, you know, it's like these common, really super normal things that a lot of people kind of take for granted. Uh, you know, like the ability to use technology on the level that we are right now. There are a lot of people who just can't. Uh, most of them are older, right? Older people. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of them are younger people who don't have the experience yet. But, you know, it's just being able to use this technology or being able to read, I guess. Literacy is not something that everybody just has. There are grown adults who can't read for one reason or another. Right. It's it's a learned so, thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we take it for granted totally. And I'm not saying that we should always consciously think about this super basic stuff. But what I am saying is depriving one of your D&D &D characters of a basic skill creates really fun limitations to work with. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And also reinforces the idea of party codependency, which is a really good idea. Not so much a good idea in real life. Uh, don't be too codependent. On other people. But <laughs> right. in D&D, &D, right? Making the party rely and lean on each other. It's really, really cool because... You know, one, it makes roleplay a lot more fun and interesting if they need each other, right? They, and even if players, even if the characters, some of them don't like each other very much, they realize that they need each other to fill in their gaps so right. that they can be like the party in capitalization, you know, the unit. Yeah. It's really cool. And I love it when it gets to happen for sure. Yeah, and I, and I also understand that some people will munchkin their characters to be good at everything. And like, oh, yeah, that's it's like that's you're a, depriving yourself. Yeah, you really are. And you're and you're kind of making it less OK, like being adaptable and able to fill in roles when someone else is down or something like a backup healer or a backup uh, melee combatant or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's really useful. Uh, like right now, I'm playing a character that is basically a tank. She's really good at not getting hit, but she's not the damage dealer. And she's like. A wizard but there's someone else who's a wizard who's a better wizard than her and can do more stuff as a wizard than she can right she's very much someone who fills in roles like she her best position is just taking aggro so that her uh, uh, um her party doesn't get hit and then they can do the stuff they're really good at because she's able mm -hmm. to basically deflect and dodge and tank all these different attacks right and she's got a weakness in that she's not so great at wisdom saves so like it's really easy for her to get like a crown of madness or something and then turn yeah the party. yeah but also thankfully because i'm not an amazing damage dealer i can't super duper hurt my uh my allies in that way even if i wanted to because i'm not that good at that i'm exactly. just good at not going down yeah it's the idea it's the idea of the secondary weapon right like mm -hmm. you know you have your sword and your dagger you have your primary and your secondary like to fill in to, you drop your sword or you lose it for whatever reason you still have this backup that functions for the immediate purpose but you want your primary back soon i think it's exactly that idea um so we're getting uh to be i think two hours ish oh my gosh yeah i'm just <laughs> so, looking at the time <laughs> so this has been uh, an extra long episode but before we go I want to give you the floor, uh, cr Crab, uh, if you want, to share a uh, your own story of your own game um, or like of a character, something that uh, 
you've kind of not put in a video or maybe you did put in a video but wanted to talk about here yeah okay give me one second i have a lot of the, i've been playing D for a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah no worries yeah, yeah. Here's here's the idea. Uh, this ties back into what we were talking about a little bit earlier when it comes to player like mortality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, understanding that you kind of. This was a big learning hurdle for me. This is when I was a newer DM. I was just at the tail end of my first grand campaign levels one through 20, you know, four person party. Uh, it was an amazing two year long epic right now during this campaign i did have this one problem player and what he would do is he didn't do anything that was outright bannable right and he was he was a decent enough friend throughout so you know i didn't really know how to communicate with this guy uh i didn't really want to offend him and say that his play style was a bit damaging so i kind of let him get away with stuff and other players were not huge fans. If I could go back and change that, I would. But this was how I learned that communication is important. Long-term communication is more important than short-term feelings, like short-term offenses that'll go away tomorrow night, right? Right. Um, so this one player, he would just behave recklessly. Uh, he didn't take the game as seriously. Everybody else at the table had some experience with D&D &D death. This was a newer player who was starting to get a bit cocky and like pushing the limits, right? Just in the middle of combat, he'd hurl himself in a certain direction or purposefully cause more chaos to happen. Anyways, during the final boss fight, he got his legs crushed by a, like a dragon because he tried to like power slide underneath a stomping <laughs> foot or something. Oof. And it was just like you, had the, you fail your deck save because he was like a little dwarf barbarian, right? You fill your deck, save, your legs are being crushed by, you know, you, and they're being crushed while they're folded, so it's, like, even worse because mm -hmm. you tried to power slide, so it's like, what are you going to do? He spent a good chunk of the fight trapped underneath a dragon's foot. Um, anyway, Yeesh. it finally gets to the epilogue because they end up winning, and this person's in a wheelchair now. Like, his legs are just, he's, he's it's the end of the campaign, so this isn't going to be a huge detriment but right. he's in a wheelchair now. That's just his thing. However, he still wants to do insane stuff. And I would normally kind of make him like make him take a skill check and he'd usually fail the skill check trying to get his stunt set up. However, if he ever did, then the party would have to fish him out of trouble. It's just what it was. Cue mm -hmm. the end of the epilogue, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody else has said their goodbyes. They've fulfilled their character arcs in a really cool way uh this player never did take the game that seriously and i could feel like a twinge of i'm getting bored everybody else gets a cool fulfilling arc i never put any real work in my backstory or character i'm just here for shits and now maybe he felt a little bit left out of the big you know epilogue yeah however he well, this is the story about how one of his really stupid stunts actually fulfilled his character arc, right? Um, and so what he did was he's on this wheelchair. He's at this big dwarvish citadel, right? Now, imagine a like, you know, High Hrothgar and like Skyrim. It's like the thousand mm -hmm. steps to the top of the mountain. Think that, but in like a straight line, concrete steps, wide concrete railway, like to hold like on the side of the steps. What he does is he's getting bored. So he's just like, 
I use my wheelchair and just ride all the way down on the edge of the railway. I'm not going to be carried down the stairs. And I'm like, dude, I just look at him. All the people are looking at him. We're like, dude, this is going to get your character killed. Like, there is no way you survive this. (laughs) And he's like, bro, I'm just going to do it. Right. Like, I'm going to survive. I'm going to jump out of the way. I'm going to duck and roll. This is partly my failing because he has survived every other stupid stunt so far. But usually the other players had a hand in stopping him. Right. Yeah. Uh, Or like getting him out of the situation he fucked himself in. Right. Like (laughs) they'll fish him out of the well or, you know, they're always there to bail him out. But there's no bailing him out mid railway. So they try and grab his wheelchair and stop him. But he overpowers them with his arms and just kind of throws himself up on the railway. And despite the player's best efforts, he's going down. Right. Mm -hmm. Some of the other players, I'd say half of them were just like, fuck, let him do it. (laughs) We're done. We're done helping you, man. So he's now going down the railway. Right. And in an attempt to show some mercy uh shortly after like he's going really fast he's going to injure himself falling off his seat right but mm-hmm. he's not in like death now like he's not completely imperiled if something were to knock him off of his wheelchair he'd just tumble by the wayside and take some damage however i just say like hey your wheelchair is going too fast faster than it was ever meant to your wheels are starting to come undone right so He's just like, oh, I'm going to try and hold my wheelchair together if it's getting all rickety and falling apart. Right. So I make him roll like an athletics check and he manages to keep his wheels together and like his and it's like, okay, look, uh, (laughs) however, he succeeded. He rolled like really high there. Right. Yeah. And then I say, like, roll a dex save to maintain your balance, because this is you're going like 80 miles an hour down a railway. Right. Yeah. And he's just like, okay, And he somehow succeeds. So I'm like, oh, no, he is fucked now because he succeeded all of his saves. Uh That's not something that no normal DMs get to say. Right now. I made this clear earlier. I didn't make this clear earlier in the telling of the story, but I did tell him this when I was illustrating how bad his situation was. There was like a statue of a dwarf at the bottom of the railway. Uh huh. Yeah, that he was going to, you know, like the ball at the bottom of like a stairway, you know, railway. And it's right. just like there's a ball there or something or like a little thing. Yeah, it's a lot like that, except it's a big statue of a dwarf. And he is just hurtling towards it at 80 miles an hour. Right. Going down roughly. I mean, 80 is not a specific number, but you get it. Yeah. I know um, what you mean. So I'm just like. Look, little dude, how what are you going to do now? Like what what's what's the play so he looks at that and says obviously i'm going to throw myself off at the perfect opportunity to land beside the you know to land beside the on the other side of the stairway other side of the stair railway and just kind of roll it out you know and i don't describe to him that even if he does somehow manage to dodge he is just hurtling towards the ground that fast. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't get him out of the trouble that he's in. So everyone at the table understands this, though. And they're just like, oh, he is dead. There is no getting out of this. And he does fail his dex save. He does fail his dodge. And I just describe how bits of, like, wheelchair and bone and blood, uh, like, one moment there's this dwarf that's perfectly intact, and in the blink of an eye... It just chunks of him are flying all over the place. Yeah. 
Uh, he's dead instantly. Now, he actually looked a little bit offended. It's the shock of losing a character for some, you know, it's like people get attached to their characters. He's been riding this one out since day one for like yeah, two years. Yeah. I don't think he understood <laughs> that he could have died. And that, I believe, was a failing on my part and, you know, of his and of all the players. I think that that was something we all sort of fueled into with them bailing him out and with me allowing it to happen and never communicating. Yeah. But he did look a little bit perturbed and I felt a little bit bad. However. I kind of had a moment where I was like, wait, I can maybe salvage this. It really depends on how agreeable and what his temperament is. Because he is still, at the end of the day, his character is a highly revered hero who saved the world, like who helped towards, you know, defeating the dragon, saving the world, whatever. Right. So he was still he was just seen as the stupid Avenger. Right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's what they call you, Hulk. (laughs) The stupid Avenger. Yeah, that's kind of it. So I described how. Given that the statue was also really damaged, they simply replaced that statue with a statue of him and how daredevils or, you know, lugs, lugheads from like the world, all like several generations of daredevils have attempted to survive going down the stairway on a wheelchair it's like a, it's like a, a pilgrimage. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's yeah. And it's just like something that generations have tried to overcome but they have all failed to survive um or they chicken out and he he got a kick out of that right yeah like he's like oh like he took it really well actually and he was kind of pleased with himself like oh yeah i get a fulfilling character arc too uh so it's like it is a tale of you know initial pitfall defeat but then you know a sort of because after that, he was a much better player who understood his mortality better and tried for self-preservation more, made him more popular with his fellow party members because he's not being that stupid anymore. But he was also having more fun with this newer take on the game. Yeah. So I, I, I think it was I think it's more of a bittersweet, you know, happy ending story for sure. I really it's one of my favorite learning moments as a DM. And I bet it's one of his favorite learning moments as a player for sure. Yeah, I think you you definitely saved it by giving him a legacy, you know, and not just saying you die unceremoniously on the ground and everyone forgets who you are. Like, no, 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 no. You get your own statue and then other daredevils and crazy lunatics like yourself flock to this area to try mm. the stunt. Some people also die, but they also weren't heroes that <laughs> defeated a dragon, so they don't get a statue like you do. Right, exactly. You're still the most important person here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a very sweet way to, like, kind of soften the edge of a death that he kind of chose for himself. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's just funny to me that both his character, I bet, and and him as a player never even considered the possibility of more like you know that one famous critical role clip where marish is like we're basically gods right and jumps off of a cliff just free falling right and is like i'm just gonna turn into a fish and land in the ocean and it's that simple um but you know it's it's the cockiness Mm -hmm. that comes with never having experienced a death or a really close brush with death that makes you like 
she ends up, her character ends up dying. She turns into a fish and falls onto the rocks below, just ignoring the fact that she could have done that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and that, you know, it's the we're basically gods attitude that gets you killed. But afterwards, it makes your future characters much more fulfilling and interest like and uh, mortal, you know? Yeah, it's like roguelikes. The idea that when this character dies, he's gone. That makes playing as that character and makes combat and decisions actually meaningful. Right. I agreed. I, I think that player death is an important part of the game and to not to to put you know, bumpers and safety nets around your players when they're learning the game makes sense, especially early on when they put all this work into a backstory, they're lower level. So death is much yeah, more of a reality, exactly. like giving them outs, giving and, and giving them fair warning. Like for I obviously you've already kind of moved past this story. You've learned what you needed to learn. If it were me and, and this player was telling me that's what they want to do, I'd say pause. Can you make an insight check for me? Because I want to see if your character's smart enough to understand what's going on, right? I'm not going to tell you, like, you can't do it. I just want to see how much information I'm going to give you about what's about to happen here. All right? And if they make it on their insight, I give them, like, it's not even hard to see, like, a 10, you know, DC. Right, yeah, no, like, an animal would know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would say, okay, you are going to make a series of saving throws, or a series of checks, because you're doing a thing, right? So athletics mm -hmm. to hold the thing together, acrobatics to keep your balance, and then finally you're gonna make maybe a couple saving throws. However, to you know you are going to hurt at the end. There's no way you can get to the bottom without absolutely taking tons of injury, but you might survive. You have to make every single saving throw, and every single saving throw's DC is going to increase as you save, meaning if you fail early on, you only take a little bit of damage and you actually will probably have a higher likelihood of uh, survival. But the more that you make, the worse it gets. So if you do not make yes. every single saving throw, you will most likely die at the end. Yeah, like if you every time you succeed a saving throw, your chances of death increase right. by a lot. Yeah, the, your chances of taking critical damage yeah. increase by a lot. That would have been a much smarter way if there was like some sort of wisdom or intelligence saving throw to tell him like, I want to I actually want to see if your character is like I might have maybe I just thought of this. Mm -hmm. uh, I have not considered it too much, but I might even make them have like a willpower wisdom throw to like, you know how it's hard. You, you're not going to take a cleaver and cut off your own hand. Your mind really puts up protection for you to stop you from hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. Usually yeah, yeah. like, you know. How you can bite through your finger and it wouldn't be much harder than biting through a carrot, but still your brain just doesn't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's that instinctual. It's, uh, exactly. I yeah. might have put that up because it's like this is clearly suicidal. Right. But, you know, well, um, uh, yeah, I mean, still, yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, I got to get going because I got a booster for COVID I need to go get. So, oh, all right. so why don't you tell everybody yeah. where they could find you? All right. So first, I just want to thank Shane uh, for supporting us small creators. I really take any uh, I really take any exposure I can get. Um, next, uh, YouTube.com slash Crit Crab or find me on Twitter, though. My YouTube channel is definitely my most active platform. Uh, you're probably listening to this on YouTube. So, yeah, you can just find me right there. I make a lot of podcasts like I, I, I've collabed with other people. I make 
episodes a lot like this to where you can just sit back, listen to it, listen to my RPG stories uh, playlist, all of them, all like 200 or so in chronological mm-hmm. order. Super good. So yeah, you can find me there. Awesome. Thank you for uh, being on the podcast and uh, hope to have you on again sometime. Yeah, for sure. It's been a lot of fun. This is the longest I think I've been on any show, but you're a really good host. So yeah. Thanks. I'm going to leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>